Okay, I have to say, I have been a huge fan of everything you've done for ever, for a very, very long time. That's as it should be. Yeah. <laughs> I used to collect X-Men comic books, and I don't know if you saw this backstage, but I'm wearing my Professor Parking only shirt for you today. Thank you. Um, I just want to start first off with a question regarding your cameo role on Big Bang Theory. Yes. I'd rather think of myself not as someone who did a cameo in that show, but as the star of the show. Why does somebody use it? Oh my gosh. Okay. My apologies. Um, the episode that you starred on of Big Bang Theory, um, how was that experience filming that sitcom for you? Okay. It's funny, I don't hear as well as I used to. And when this thing, when someone talks it, you know what it sounds like to me? <laughs> so you use this to them, but to me, just do it. Now, I'm going to tell you what he said, because he didn't use the microphone. <laughs> How did that experience affect me on the Big Bang Theory, right? Well, it didn't affect me, it affected the rest of the cast, because they had something to shoot for. They had a performance, they had a private equal, and it made them so nervous and tense. I think that's why they never asked me back again. No, I mean, to be serious, which is not easy for me, and it was wonderful. The cast, they're the nicest people. I have a photograph of me with all of them, and the girl is kissing me on the cheek. And um, I got a text tweet that one of these days, I think. Maybe I did, I can't remember. <laughs> the, um, the producer, Chuck Murray, is a friend of mine. Years ago, I had a studio in Los Angeles called Stanley Productions. No, I'm sorry. Marvel Productions. <laughs> That's fine. Let's just call it Stanley Productions from now on. What happened I, when I came out west? I had always been in New York at Marvel, and I came out in about 1980 to set up their animation studio, and we called it Stanley Productions. And at any rate, Chuck Lorre, the producer of The Big Bang Theory, and also Two and a Half Men, and other shows, he's one of the most successful guys. At that time, he was a writer working at a Marvel production, so I got to know him, and he's the nicest guy in the world. And it's a funny thing, because I also got friendly with, who's the guy from Two and a Half Men who left the show? Charlie Sheen? Charlie Sheen, I have a great memory. And I also have gotten friendly with Charlie Sheen, because we may be doing something together. So here I am, friends with Charlie Sheen, and with Chuck Lorre, and they are not friends, and I'm in the middle. So if any of you of me being arrested or shot or anything, you know you heard it first here. To answer your question, I'm only talking a lot because I hear we have like three quarters of an hour to fill, and I don't know anything, so if I can talk about anything, it'll help a little bit. Anyway. Do I hang out with Charlie Sheen? Nice way I'm helping you with it. <laughs> no, I have 
best of the ones. He came up to the office a couple times. We were supposed to get together, and I couldn't make it, or he couldn't make it. But the few times I've been with him, he's a hell of a nice guy, you know? And so is Chuck. I may try to make, get the two of them together. I, I may be one of the great peacemakers of all time. Exactly. <laughs> the peacemakers. Stand oh, can I tell you something else about the show? You asked about the show. Uh, the show we were talking about was the uh, Big Bang Theory. Just to show you, I can retain the point for at least a minute. Now, the Big Bang Theory, you hear a lot of applause and a lot of laughter at almost every line. And everybody thinks they have one of these laugh meters. You know, these things you plug in and they automatically laugh. But they don't. And they don't have a studio audience in the show. The people laughing are the people in the show themselves, the, the people working, the, the electricians, the photographers, all the people behind the camera. They're the ones who are always laughing because they really think it's funny. And I was so impressed when I saw that. But this is not a panel about the Big Bang Theory, so I promise not to say any more about it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right, um, let's take a question from mic number five, please. How do you know who I can find it? It says it right there. Oh, <laughs> this technical age. <laughs> Go ahead. Stan, after 20 years in the comic business in the early 1960s, you became an overnight success. You created uh, such iconic characters as uh, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, Thor, Sergeant Fury. And Sergeant Fury. That's his beloved, one of the most popular, well-known, loved characters in popular culture. I like this guy, whoever he is. And I was just wondering, those three years, 61, 62, 63, those 11 characters you just talked about, I'd like to know what those years were like. When it was happening, was it like just something... Did you know something amazing and incredible was happening? Was it just like hit the deadlines, get the job done? Or did you realize what was really, did you, did you see, get that feel about what's happening there? Well, I never knew that it would lead to an exciting moment like this in Calgary. <laughs> all that happened, really, I was writing these things and I was hoping the books would sell so I'd keep my job and be able to pay the rent. I don't think any of us ever felt we were onto something that would turn into what it turned into. And it happened gradually. You know, DC Comics was the big company, and they were always out selling us. And I was friends, we were all friends in the business, even though it seemed that we tried to pretend we were rivals, but we all had drinks together and we knew each other and went out together. I was friends with Carmine Infantino, that time was the editor-in-chief editor of the DC, which was then called National Comics. So anyway, all that we were trying to do was get books that would sell as well as DCs, so that that would mean we were successful, we wouldn't worry about going out of business. And little by little, after the Fantastic Four, our sales started to, to, to increase. And after a few years, we started outselling DC, 
So something told me we were on the right track. But again, I never thought it would end up with movies and talking at big conventions and being with Garrett here, who's a, an actual live-action actor in a famous series. I mean, wow. Thank you. <laughs> That's so kind of you. I have a, a question. Um, now, when you did develop Fantastic Four, any of these other characters, was there a, a lot, was there a period of time where you had to go through a drawing board process where you were saying, well, should it be the Fantastic Seven? No. Six? No. Four. I mean, was there, was there things, ideas that you scrapped and then you, I mean, how long, where did you just come upon it like that? Well, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted a few characters that I would try to treat differently than comic book characters had been treated before. You know, up until then, it seemed that every superhero, and there weren't that many, but every superhero had a secret identity and wore a costume, which revealed his, his real identity. And I used to think to myself, oh no, wait, I can't say that. I said that the other day, and my wife said, Stan, what do you mean you think to yourself? Who else would you think to? <laughs> so, I always try to catch myself. I thought, I didn't think to myself. What was I saying? So, <laughs> I kind of stopped sidetracking myself. So anyway, I wanted to get some character. Oh, I know. I felt if I, were, if I had a superpower, which is not to say I don't, thought wouldn't be to run out and get a costume and a mask. First of all, I'm a pretty conceited guy. If I had a superpower, I'd want everybody to know. Look at me, I can do what you can't do. Ha <laughs> ha! I mean, think, think of the fun Superman could have had if, if he told everybody I'm And that, no, I didn't mention Reed Richards. 
Uh, one thing in the main hero to be a guy a little bit like me. He talks too much, bores the hell out of people, and the only way he's not like me, he was a scientific genius. And I hate to admit this, but I'm not. And in fact, the most I know about science, I wanted something to happen to them when they were up in the spaceship to give them their power. So I figured, okay, they were blasted by cosmic rays. Now, I've got to tell you, I wouldn't know a cosmic ray from a hole in the ground. All I know is the expression, a cosmic ray. Like with Bruce Banner when he became the Hulk. I figured, well, I've already used the cosmic ray. What are the rays on there? Okay, This is really odd. 
because when John Romita and FSD Dickel, John Romita and I were doing the uh, Spider-Man strip, and we we had created um, not Mary Jane, Gwen Stacy, and I thought Gwen Stacy would eventually be the girl that Spider-Man married and Peter Parker married. But just for fun, we wanted to introduce another girl, so we introduced Mary Jane. Now, these were fictitious girls that we made up out of our heads. They didn't really exist, and yet, once we started writing them, and I started writing the dialogue for them, Mary Jane suddenly had all the personality, and Gwen, while she was a nice girl, was just a nice girl. And Mary Jane was the one with the fiery personality and she was hip and everything. And we couldn't control that. We couldn't make Gwen as exciting or personable as Mary Jane, even though we tried. It was like they were living creatures and we couldn't control them. Maybe I shouldn't tell that because maybe it shows that we were a lousy writer and artist. <laughs> I'll tell you another thing. Um, I killed off Captain Stacy in, in one story because I thought it would be very dramatic. Captain Stacy was um, Gwen's, Gwen's father. Was her name Gwen Stacy? I think it was Gwen Stacy. Yeah, okay. Uh, if you don't know, we can settle for that. Um, so I killed off her father because I wanted a very dramatic moment when the father is dying and Peter Parker, Spider-Man, tried to save him. And he always worried, what would the father say if I married Gwen and he found out that I'm Spider-Man? And Peter Parker didn't know that Gwen's father, didn't think Gwen's father knew who he was. But when Gwen's father lay dying in Peter's arm, he said something like, I'm sorry, in Spider-Man's arm, Spider-Man had tried to save him a couple of late or something. He said to Spider-Man, take good care of Gwen, Peter. And Spider-Man realized the father knew who he was. And I thought that was incredibly dramatic. And now we can move on with the story. Well, a few months later, I had to go to Europe for some reason. I left the book to Jerry Conway to write. And when I was in Europe, I found out that he had killed Gwen Stacy. <laughs> I said, we already killed the father. It's like we have a vendetta against the Stacy family. <laughs> one last thing about Gwen, about Mary Jane and about Gwen. There was one line I loved, and I don't know why they didn't use it in the movie. I thought it would be so good. Peter Parker's aunt always wanted him to meet this girl next door, who was a very nice girl. Now most teenagers, if their mother says, I want you to meet a nice girl, they'll run a mile. Most guys don't want a nice girl. They want a sexy girl, a fun girl, but not a nice girl, when they're teenagers. Anyway, Peter kept avoiding this. He, he just would do everything he could not to meet Mary Jane. In one story where I had a meet her, he met her in the last panel. She came to the house 
he, he, he couldn't get away. He, the aunt knew she was coming. He made, she made Peter stay there. The door opened up. He opens the door. And there is this gorgeous redhead. And she said to him, what did she say to him? <laughs> face it tight, face it tighter. You won the jackpot or some line like that. I forget what it was. But I thought it was so good, and they didn't use it in the movie, I'm ashamed of it. I'm sorry, I'm talking to <laughs> Oh, you're talking to just enough. <laughs> okay. Oh, I know what she said. I know, I know, I know. She said, face it, tiger, you hit the jackpot. That was a good line. That's a great line. Okay, we have another question, mic number five. Wait at us, wherever mic number five is. Can you read that? I, I can read that, yes. Is that mic five? Yes. It's over there. Hey, it's Dan. How's it going? My name's Jay. Welcome to Calgary. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to speak about and see what kind of was happening with amalgamated comics, uh, the whole crossover between DC and Marvel a few years ago. Uh, did you have a hand in that at all? I never heard of it. Who's an amalgamated comic? It was like the Marvel symbol and the DC symbol put together. It was like Dark Claw with Wolverine and Batman, and Spider-Man was crossed with... I hate to let you down, but I don't know anything about that. Really? But that reminds me of another story. <laughs> This really, to me, is amazing. When we saw that our books were selling after the Fantastic Four and the Hulk and so forth, I decided to change the company's name. We had been called, um, I think, Atlas, Atlas Comics at the time. And I wanted to get a better name, a name I could, I love advertising. I wanted to get a name I could advertise, and I thought of Marvel. That had been, the name of the first magazine they ever published in the 30s. I said, let's call it Marvel Comics, because then I could come up with slogans like, Make Mine Marvel, Welcome to the Marvel Age of Comics, and Marvel Marches On, and I, I could have fun with the name. Okay, so we changed it to Marvel. A short time later, DC, which was then called National Comics, and they were always imitating us, they said, obviously, hey, if Marvel changed their name, we're going to change our name. So I understand they paid a high-price expert. I didn't know there were such people who, who are experts in name changing. They paid a lot of money for a guy to come up with a name. And they ended up with DC Comics. Now, we were Marvel. And they were DC. <laughs> they would have been better off national. You could do more with the name national. So anyway, I, I'm sorry to um, intrude on what we were saying, but I just had to get that off my chest. Thank you for bearing with me. You're a very sweet boy. No more interruptions. Okay, never use Never use water. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, mic number two. Mic number two. We wave at us. Where are you? Oh, back there? Okay. 
is she's all the way back there. All right, go ahead. Can you tell where they are? I think I ask them to jump and wave and I see them. See if they like this. Really? <laughs> no, I see the people you know. Oh, anyway, go ahead. Question, please. Great to meet you, Stan. I'm Scott, and we're all thrilled to see Stan the Man. Right on. Is that my question for you? Is I've been a fan of the X-Men for years. The first issue of X-Men, I noticed how they seem very similar in personality in the first issue. Such as the beast and his jargon when he spoke, it was a lot like the thing. Now, by issue number two, he was reading very advanced textbooks. That's one really good question I have. What was your main reason for going that route with making the tough guy that genius, which is totally different than the thing? And I heard that you're a big fan of the angel, and what was your reason for making him the personality of the arrogant, brash, rich boy that he was? Make my Marvel! <laughs> well, I'm glad you're a fan, even if you did ask me a difficult question. <laughs> and I like to give characters definite personalities. When we started the X-Men, for some reason, we were in a hurry with that first issue, and I kind of batted out the story and gave it to Jack Kirby to draw, and that was it. Then after it had been done and I read it, I said, I didn't give these characters enough personality. So in the second issue, I always like to go against type. We had a guy called the Beast, who looked like the most uneducated and the toughest of the group. So I figured I'll let him be the one who's the most intellectual. That would be going against type. As far as the angel went, and I love the angel. I'm sorry that he had never been featured much in the movies or anywhere. I, I would have used more of him had I remained there. But I wanted him to be a very rich, very conceited guy. Not a bad guy. But he, he knows he's handsome, he knows the women love him, he thinks he's too good for anybody, and I thought I could have fun with a character like that. And he knew when, when he finally took off his jacket and spread his wings, he felt this is the greatest thing in the world and I'm impressing people. So he was conceited, a little bit like me, and, and I wanted him to be that way. And the same with all of them, I tried to give them all very definite characters. Now, I did not create Wolverine, and I'm embarrassed that I didn't, because he is a great character, and I love the personality he has. He, he's almost a bad guy, but he's good, and he's great, and he's tough. He's like you and me. He's tough, and he's wonderful. That's it. Awesome. <laughs> you don't know how this is. This is so awesome. I, I'm sitting right here, and you're sitting right here, and I'm going to take a picture of us. We were sitting somewhere else. Can I just keep this
Sam, can I take one more? There's probably a million taking them out there anyway. Oh, good actor. Mike Six, where you got There she is. Okay. Oh, sweet. Uh, my question for you is, where in that vast imagination of yours you came up with the concept of the Green Goblin? How, what shape, Jim? Where'd he come from? He's my favorite. <laughs> I, um, you know, once you've created the heroes, you've got them. But you're going to do a book month after month after month, so every month you have to come up with a new film. So for a while, it wasn't too hard for me because there were so many animals and birds and things. I had the vulture, I had the lizard, I had the scorpion, I had the rhino. You keep coming up with animals. Every month I ran out of animals. So I figured, what else is bad? And as I see, there are ghosts, there are zombies, and there are goblins, and wait a minute, goblin. As far as I knew, there weren't any goblins in any books at the moment. So I figured, okay, I had my villain. But you know me, I like alliteration. I like to have another word with the word, usually beginning with the same letter. So I said, let's say goblin, gray goblin. Now, gray isn't a good color, it doesn't print well. Uh, and, oh, and let me tell you about the Hulk when I finish this. It has to do with That's the trouble. Everything reminds you of something else. But then I thought green. Green is a spooky color. It sounds good with goblins, so we had the green goblin. And then I had the fun of making him really a wealthy guy, and he was crazy, and he had a son who was Peter's best friend. The more you can entangle a plot, the better it is. Now they have the Hulk. Um, what I wanted to do was get a monster who was a good monster. I always loved the Frankenstein movie, and I always felt that the role that Boris Karloff played of the monster, he was really the good guy. He didn't want to hurt anybody. And those idiots with torches kept chasing him up and down the hill. So I thought, I'm going to get a good monster. Then I said to myself, I didn't say I thought to myself, it's okay to say to yourself. I said to myself, it could be kind of dull just watching a monster running around story after story. And I remembered Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I said, what if he's a regular person who turns into the monster? And the monster hates the regular person, and that regular person hates the monster, but there's nothing they can do about it. Okay. Now, the next thing was getting back to costumes. I told you that I didn't like costumes, I didn't want them, I didn't give them the Fantastic Four. But, after the first issue of the Fantastic Four, we got a ton of fan mail saying, we love the book, it's great, but we'll never buy another, co another copy unless you give them costumes. And I realized there's something about superhero fans, they like their heroes to have costumes. So, when I did the Hulk, I couldn't figure out how a monster would go into a shop somewhere and say, make me a costume. <laughs> but I had to do something to please the fans. So I figured I'll make his skin a different color like nobody else and that'll be like a costume. 
So I started going through a list of colors, because I'm very thoughtful and scientific. <laughs> and I went down the list and I got to gray, and I said, I think gray is a good color, because it could look spooky. It's kind of dark, but not too dark, and so forth. And as far as I knew, there were no villains who were gray. So I made them gray in the first issue, but what happened was, the printer couldn't print the color well. On one page he looked dark gray, on one page light gray, on one page it was almost white and black. It was like we didn't know what color our character was. There are no flies on me. I said, I'm going to change the color. So again, I went through a list of colors and I said, green isn't bad. And I decided to make them green. And that's why those of you who might have a first issue of the Hulk might wonder, why is he gray when he later became green? And now you know the inside story, you lucky people. Okay, Mike Five, where are you? Okay, over there on the left. Hello, young man. Hello, Mr. Lee. I was wondering what's your favorite movie based on your comics? My favorite movie based on my comics? You know, no matter what I say, if the word gives out, the actors, directors, and producers of the other movies are going to be mad at me. <laughs> They're all my favorites. I love them all. But I must admit, I just saw The Avengers the other day. I think that The Avengers will take superhero movies to a new height. I can't from a nice young man, very good grammar. Good. Thank you very nicely for the nice interlocutor. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Lee. Um, it says no more questions right now. Hmm. Oh, well, I think there might be something happening right now. Does anyone, uh, is anyone backstage coming out for us at all? Hello? Do you have a surprise for us? I think there may be a surprise for us. I'm just trying to see if that surprise is on its way out. Lindsay! Oh, hello, Lindsay. Hey. Oh, Emily. Sorry, sorry. Emily. It's my first time at Calgary. Give me a break. Okay. We have a card. I'll see you all later.
say that again. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so each and every one of you who responded to that, that Facebook post, your response is in this card right here. For oh, Stan. wow. And the art was done by our good friend Kelly Schlady. And uh, she's got the original backstage somewhere. But this is this is something we really wanted to give you that you can take away from the expo so that you can know just how much we absolutely adore you. Thank you, that's wonderful. <laughs> and the difference that you have made in the lives of thousands of people. Thank <laughs> you. 